You are listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Now, here is more to the story. Welcome to the Forefront Church Podcast, more to the story, where we talk about last week's sermon and this week, even a sermon back beyond that. If you have questions that you would like to have answered, please send them to life at ForefrontChurch.tv or if you're at Forefront on Sundays, you can just drop off those questions in the back boxes at the Worship Center. And with us today, Pastor Darren Enns, how are you doing today? Hey, doing good. Just back I, from a trip, trip to Kansas. So, How'd the little one handle the trip? Uh, she she did really good. Yeah, she's handling road tripping decently. So, Good. Good, good. And we have also with us Pastor Drew Tarwater. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, guys. Good to be with you. And uh, you just got back from a road trip as well. Yeah, we got back from playing in the sand out on the East Coast. So it's uh, it was fun, but it's good to be back. And eating oh, lobster. Eating lobster. Oh, we'll have to talk about that here in a minute here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a, what a segue. Lots of, lots of shellfish. <laughs> So a few weeks back, Darren, you talked about the law and how it relates. Could you give us a quick recap on that for us? Yeah, so my main point in talking about the law that we find in the first five books of the Old Testament is that it's a it's progressive and a revolutionary uh, set of, of commands that show the character and will of God. And so it's progressive in that um, it, it tried to, to stretch culture toward uh, what God's ideal was, and it was revolutionary in that it... it a lot of those principles had not been seen in the ancient Near East before. So in our modern context, 21st century eyes, we look back and we think, oh, it's barbaric, it's regressive. How could a God allow slavery? Um, all those sorts of things. And uh, but, but in its context, it was revolutionary and progressive. It's just that context was 3,500 years ago. So uh, yeah, I base it off Exodus 19 and uh, the covenant that God enters into with his people of Israel. He saves them first, grace comes first, and then he gives them this set of commands to be his people, to be a priesthood to the entire nation, to, to the entire world. Interesting. What was the law of the land of the day before the covenant with God? It was like, I believe it started with an H or something like, help me out with that. It was like with most of the other, like the Canaanite lands Kind of. Um, I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about. Is it Hammurabi? Is that Hammurabi. Yeah. Yeah. Like so code of Hammurabi. Yeah. So actually, every little nation had their own set of laws. So Egypt, where the Israelites were living, had their own set. Hammurabi was was a pretty popular one. But in order to be a nation in the ancient Near East and recognized by their people, you had to have a set of laws. Um, mm-hmm. Just like today, if the if the United Nations doesn't recognize you as a sovereign nation, then you're re- not really a sovereign nation. Like ISIS was never a sovereign nation, even though they had territory that they controlled. So the ancient Israelites, in order for them to become a nation, had to have a set of laws and, and a covenant by which they operated. And so that was why another reason why it was really important that established them as having an identity as a people. No, interesting. Another interesting one for you, since we're, we've talked about the laws, one of the ones that kind of always has thrown me off is the dietary laws, where it's like, that you can't eat this, you shouldn't eat this. Like, yeah. What are what are 
what are the policies we should stand by, I guess? <laughs> yeah, so in, in my sermon, I talked about trying to find a, a, an overarching principle. I talked specifically about the Ten Commandments, uh, which Jesus reduced into two, which is love God and love others. And those are the, the overarching principles that we as Christians now should live by. And that was really the same principles back then, too. Um, and so uh, one unique thing about the Old Testament covenant, though, was that God wanted them to be a rep- he wanted them to be his representatives to the entire world. So if someone should look at Israel, they wanted God wanted them to see himself through them, if that makes sense with all those pronouns. Um, <laughs> and so one way that he did that was to make them a little bit different, create something a little bit unique. Um, and through those things, it, it communicated something about God's character. There's uh, a lot of confusion about what that is when it comes to dietary laws in general. Things that are unclean that you should not eat um, are, are things that kind of bridge uh, bridge barriers between one of the three distinguished sets of creation. So you have earth, you have sky, and you have sea. If there's something that uh, bridges those gaps, like amphibians, those are you should not eat those. Like stay in your lane, be pure as a nation. So only eat fish that are like oceanic. Um, don't eat something that comes onto land and goes out into into the Interesting. water. That, so that's one thing. So essentially crustaceans, like lobster, not not really good to eat for an, for an ancient Israelite. For us, yeah, we eat those. They taste good. Lobster rolls, they're, they're, they're good. They taste really good. <laughs> is that your theological opinion, Drew? Or is that... <laughs> it's more my culinary opinion. <laughs> okay, fair enough. What about, what about then uh, pigs? I, I th- so I'm a little bit more unclear on, on yeah there definitely are a land thing but sometimes when um, like something that that eats dead animals like a, like a, a what vulture that's the word I'm looking for like a vulture those would be unclean pigs uh, it, it might be that they're like they, they kind of wallow in mud and they're just kind of dirty animals and bottom feeders essentially so um yeah, that's that's one reason it could be. But I'm not super clear on those. I don't know, Drew. Do you have any ideas? Yeah, there was a there was a scholar that had a theory on this. Was that in the ancient days? I mean, they're cooking things over open flames. They didn't have the meat thermometer that I use on my ribs to make sure that there are 204 degrees when they come out of the smoker. And so, typically, people undercooked meat in those days. And so, pork was one of those things that bacteria grew on really easily. And so one of the ways God also protected his people from getting sick was don't eat pork. Um, it's just hard to cook. It's hard to get to the right temperature. And so, you know, a lot of people would get sick and die in those days. So that was another way that God would use the dietary law to protect his people. Yeah, a lot of things just made sense too. Like uh, letting the land lie fallow every seven years, not only did that reflect the Sabbath, but it also made sense for you to not to tax your land to grow more crops. Um, farmers in, in modern times do that. We, uh, my dad as a farmer doesn't do that now because we have fertilizer where we can just uh, reinsert nutrients back into the ground. But before you had fertilizer, it was a good idea uh, to, to allow your land a year to recoup its nutrients before you, you taxed it another six years. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, that is, that's really interesting. You know, one of the things now, of course, this is, this is non-biblical. Uh, we're not sure that this happened, but I just imagine, imagine Jesus and the guys hanging out. And when Jesus says that, you know, he came to fulfill the law and then they go out and they eat bacon for the first time. Can you imagine the joy <laughs> in Peter and James and John and the fellas, Bartholomew, when he's like, 
this is the greatest thing in the history of the world. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. So as, you know, Christians looking back through Jesus, we can say, thank you, Jesus, for saving us from our sin and <clears throat> leading us to new life and for bacon-wrapped jalapenos. I feel like that should be under the next forefront church. Like, Jesus, thanks for saving us and jalapeno-wrapped bacon. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, speaking of interesting laws, so not only did I eat a lot of lobster on our vacation, but we saw a lot of really beautiful birds up in New England. Um, man, I saw everything, you know, Blue Jays and Cardinals and Robins and Orioles and all the baseball teams. It was really fun. Uh, but there is an interesting law in Deuteronomy 22, Darren, that I have to ask you about. And oh, it yeah. talks about coming across a bird's nest in the tree or on the ground with eggs or, or young birds with a mother sitting on her eggs. And it's something about not taking the mother. Explain this to me. Yeah, yeah. So Deuteronomy 22, 6 and 7, if you come across a bird's nest, either in a tree, ground, as, as you said, uh, only take the, the, the young or the eggs. Don't, don't take the mother. Leave the mother. Um, and then at the end of verse 7, so, uh, or sorry, uh, so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. Well, okay. Uh, what does that mean? Well, imagine you're an Israelite uh, uh, soldier, and you're walking across the, the road, you're marching w- with your army, and you have to essentially live on the lamb. Your supply lines aren't set up that well, um, and so you kind of have to li- live off the land that you're, you're going through. So if there's a wheat field, you're going to pick the heads off and, and eat, the, eat the grain. Uh, you, you can hunt and do stuff like that. Um, in this context, if you find a nest and there's some food in it, uh, it would be good for you to leave the mother so that it can continue to produce life for you when you're occupying the land. So as you're, this is in Deuteronomy, again, the context is reinterpreting the law of how you're going to, one, enter the promised land and conquer it, but also live in the promised land. So it would not be good for you to hunt things to extinction or eat things to extinction. Allow life to continue and prosper so that your life can continue and prosper. So how does that apply to us today? Well, if, if you're a farmer, um, a lot of these things can cross contexts really well. Um, you know, don't hunt all your deer in your land. Allow deer to create more deer so that you can have more deer later to hunt and eat. Um, for us in an urban context where we are in Denver, that might be a little harder. It, it could be something like uh, make sure that that places you buy groceries from are sustainable. Um, you know, f- fisheries. Uh, some fishermen are, are notorious for just fishing the, the sea to extinction. So try to make sure that you're supporting sustainable practices or something like that. Don't so buy up all the, the Charmin. <laughs> yes, don't buy all the toilet paper. That's a good idea. That didn't work in April 2020. <laughs> so you're saying it's biblical to get a bidet. Got it. <laughs> I mean, you're onto something there, Rob. So then one of the other kind of weird questions with the Old Testament is like my wife and I have talked about this as we've read through parts of the Old Testament and you talk about the stories and with uh, the, the, a lot of the main characters having multiple wives and polygamy. Mm. It just seems, it's, it never really seems like the Bible endorses it, but it doesn't say don't do it either. Well, yeah, so, so is, is it an endorsement by omission? Like, uh, it, it never comes out and says, I mean, actually it does. It does come out and say have one wife uh, in, in the early Genesis 2, right? Uh, okay. One, yeah, one marriage is, is one, one man, one woman, yeah. one flesh. So if you have multiple spouses, uh, that that whole one flesh thing doesn't really work. So it does come out and say that. And yet, as you said, Rob, the stories that we find later on, well, there's multiple wives. Like, what's going on? Uh, why did that happen? Uh, well, the uh, 
actually, I, I kind of preached on it really early on in our Greater Story series. Lamech was the first guy recorded in the Bible who had two wives, and he was an awful human being. He, he bragged about killing so many men, and then he took two wives. Um, and so it, it's part of the sinful part of humanity that came in that, that produced that. Uh, I, I think that um, if, if you imagine the scenario of why polygamy was rampant in the ancient Near East, some powerful men would take several wives just because they could. Um, and also women were kind of viewed as property. They, they didn't have as high a status as they should have. Uh, in Exodus 21.10, um, let me go find that real fast. 21.10. Uh, it says, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. So, okay, hang on. Are you saying that polygamy is okay? You can have more than one wife? So, no, God was trying to, again, interact with the culture, stretch it towards his ideal, um, but put some things in place that would be good. And so that stretches the culture by making sure that if a man took a second wife, if he did, then the first wife, by law, was to be treated equally. Because sometimes they would take a second wife and then they would treat the first one very poorly and she would have no more rights within the marriage. So, um, again, it's really hard for us to swallow with 21st century eyes, but... um, for us, you know, of course, women are not property. We would not take a second wife. So God has to work within the culture and, and do the best that, that he can to stretch them, but it won't break the culture. No, interesting. And then uh, a few weeks ago, or last week, Drew, you were ta- started talking on the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Could you give us a quick recap on that? Yeah, so I think it really piggybacked well off of what Darren talked about in the law. And so God, he is communicating to his people now how you can be the nation of Israel, how you're going to be God's people and to be this light to the nations. And so we talked about last Sunday that God gives them the Ten Commandments or the Ten Rules. It's actually translated as the Ten Words. So we kind of put commandment into that. So the Ten Words, and and God gives them really what it is, is the uh, the priority for how they're supposed to um, focus their their you know their life and it's to put God first and then to put others before themselves and so he gives these 10 rules these 10 commandments to be really guardrails to help guide relationships and so we talked about how you know the the rules God's rules God's commandments don't create relationships they don't constrict relationships what they do is they guard them like guardrails on a bridge and so we see that there's this order of priority um, the first four commandments God gives are in our relationship with Him. They help guide our relationship with Him. And then the last six help guide our relationship with each other. And we look at it through the filter of um, how do we, what do we, what do we put first in our life? And so if you look at the order, you start off with God saying, you know, don't have other, any other gods before me. Don't worship any other images. Don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. And then you move into this whole, um, the next six, which talk about, you know, honoring your mom and dad, don't murder, don't steal, don't kill, don't lie, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. And so really, it just gives us almost like if you're bowling, you know, you got the little bumpers in the gutters, right? It just helps you keep from going off into the gutter. Um, and so these rules don't constrict us, but what they do is they actually lead us to freedom and to joy if we can learn them in the right context. Uh, it's interesting looking at the commandments. So the first two seem really similar, where it's like no other gods yeah, they do. and don't worship idols. Like, how are the, what are the difference? Is it the verbiage different? Like, they sound the same, but there's got to be a reason why they're separated. 
Yeah, I always wondered this too. I always read these 10 and thought, is there really just nine? Because it seems like the first one, don't have any other gods. And then the second commandment, you know, God goes into some detail. Don't bow down to, don't create any idols, don't worship any kind of false idols or, or images uh, of anything made. And so what's the difference here that makes them two instead of one? And, and I think there is a really, a really cool difference if you, if you can dive into them. So the first commandment, Genesis 20, verse 3, tells us that we're only to worship God. We're only to worship the God of the Bible, the God of creation, and no other God. And remember, he's speaking to a group of people who came out of Egypt and who had, you know, there was 120 different gods they worshipped in Egypt, right? The God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of the desert, the God of the whatever. And so he is helping them to see there are no other gods but me. And we're going to see that throughout the first five books as he's trying to get them ready to go into the promised land, that he's continually saying there's only one God. I am, the, you know, the creator God, and I am the only one that you can worship, so the idea there, that first commandment, is that you are loyal only to God, only to Yahweh, the, the God of the Bible. And he is the one who gets all of our focus, all of our attention, all of our priority. The second one gives more detail on that, but it also shows us how we worship God. So, so if you think back to those ancient Near East cultures, they worshiped God. They would take wood or stone and they would make a little image, right? And so they would... You know, they would bow down to this little fake god. Um, it could be an animal. It could have been uh, some kind of the form of a person. Uh, you go back to the book of Genesis, and you see that when Jacob, Rachel, and Leah are traveling away from Laban, they're getting chased by their, uh, Rachel's and Leah's dad. Rachel's hiding the family idols. These are little figures that they used to worship. Mm. And so God is telling them, don't worship anything. So he's teaching them how to worship. And so he says, first commandment, don't worship any other gods. Second commandment, don't actually bow down to anything that's been created. There's no substitute for God. That God can only be worshipped based on his own instructions. And this is interesting because what God is saying is that um, we don't put anything ahead of God, but we also don't confine our worship of God to some little figure or um, some, something that we have created God isn't contained in any physical images, which is interesting because you think about it, like we like to wear crosses on our neck, right? We wear a cross or we put a cross on the wall. You've probably been into, you know, somebody's, somebody's home and they've got a, a crucified Jesus on the wall, right? Um, if you go into some like Eastern Orthodox churches, you see they have these icons, what they call them. They've got pictures of Jesus on the wall. And so, you know, ask the question is like, well, what if I'm praying and I'm looking at that cross on the wall? Am I, in a way, bowing down to a created image? And so I think God is teaching us in the second commandment that nothing takes place of the personal presence of God in our worship, that, that God gives us the instructions for how we worship him. And so we don't create anything out of wood or stone to, to worship in place of God that we seek God's presence personally as we worship him. So I think there is a difference between the first two. As you begin to unfold the, the layers of the onion a little bit, it becomes more clear. Yeah, with uh, you brought up the Eastern Orthodox icons. It's really interesting, uh, as I've studied those, when, when someone comes into a house, like if you're an Eastern Orthodox worshiper and you come into another friend, Eastern Orthodox worshiper, and they have those icons in the house, you have to, to essentially genuflect to cross yourself and honor those images uh, before you would go on with what the re reason that you're there. And the idea behind it is not that those are gods, but that those are reminders and images of gods in order to remind us of, of what 
of what God you know, may have looked like. Um, because the, and, and I, I, I'm intrigued by this thought, that the most real expression of something spiritual is a physical reality. So it's interesting that Jesus is the full embodiment of God in human form. Uh, so we're not going to worship like the image of Jesus, but we're going to, to look at a picture to help us remind him of what he might have looked like. Uh, right. It's a really fine line between those. So um, Yeah, it is interesting. I think there is something inside of us that naturally wants to worship something physical, as you mentioned. And I think that's why people so often try to create a God to worship. You think about when Moses comes back down from the mountain in Exodus, I think, is it 22, Darren, where they create the golden calf? 32. And 32, yeah, they create the golden calf. And so, you know, they're trying to like put a picture to this God that's leading them and they don't know what to do. And so they make a golden calf because that's what they're used to doing in Egypt. And I think it's one of the reasons that, I don't know about you guys, but um, I hear people talk about how much they love the show The Chosen or they, they love many of the different uh, movies that come out that depict Jesus, like, um, like um, Passion, because you kind of get a picture of Jesus in your mind. Like, oh, that's Jesus. And so, like, I think there is something internally inside of us that we want to know what Jesus looks like. We, you know, we, we want to, like you said, I think it's a remembrance, right? We look at the cross on our necklace, and we can remember what Jesus did for us. Uh, so I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that at all. But I do think God's saying, be careful not to worship a picture of me, and be careful not to worship something that you created. Instead, seek my physical pre- presence. You know, seek me uh, in your worship. Yeah, the golden calf episode, it was unique. I used to think that they made different gods, like they worshiped other gods. But if you go and read it in, in verse uh, 6 or verse verse 4, Aaron says, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's actually referring to Yahweh. And then Aaron in verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar and said, tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh, to the Lord. And so, no, they're worshiping God, Yahweh, but they're doing it through the medium of an image. And that was exactly the second command, what they were not supposed to do. Right. Because it's a calf. You're, you're worshiping something that God made to try to worship God. That's that's silly. You you need to worship in God in spirit and truth. That's kind of some words that Paul and Jesus say. No, it's interesting to think about because like, like you were saying, Drew, like we try to put God in a box kind of like we won't. I mean, he's bigger than what we can comprehend, but we try to put him in ways that we can, which then it always shortchanges of who he really is. It does. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So speaking of God, there we hear all about God, you know, words like God is love, God is all these things, but he's also a jealous God. Mm, and you yeah. talked about this. Give us a little bit more insight when you, it's like one of the other character qualities of God. Yeah, that whole the thing, that whole commandment is, is kind of dicey. Like he's jealous and he's going to punish children. Right. Oh, man, yeah, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. One, yeah, Genesis or Exodus twenty verse four through you know through six says, "You not, shall not make yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is under uh, heaven above, or the earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth. Um, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." And I always read that and thought, that is interesting. Here we have God, the Creator, who has anything He could ever want. Why would he be jealous? And actually, if you ever listen to Oprah Winfrey's story of what what actually led her to walk away from 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 the, the you know the, the church, it was this that she she said, I can't imagine 
worshiping a God who's jealous of what I have, which shows that she has no clue what actually God is saying here, because that's not at at all what what God is saying. And he he says he's a jealous God, but notice what he says after he says, I'm a jealous God, in verse 5. He says, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Notice that, who hate me. Verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God right there says, I'm a jealous God. I'm going to be faithful to those who love me, but to those who hate me, then there's going to be consequences. So what does he mean when he says he's a jealous God? So this is really interesting. When we think about jealousy in our you know, 21st century mind, we think of jealousy as I'm jealous of what somebody has. I'm jealous of somebody, how somebody looks. I'm jealous of you know, um, their career status or whatever. But we have to think about the way that word jealous is used here. God isn't jealous of something that we have. What it's saying is that God is jealous when someone gives to another something that rightly belongs to him. So, so remember, he's speaking of people worshiping idols, and he's speaking of people bowing down to created things. And so when, what, what God is saying is that he is jealous of things that belong to him, which are worship and service. So think of this. Think of being a dad. And so you've got your kid, and all of a sudden you're out on a playground, and you watch your little daughter run up to another man and say, Daddy, Daddy, I love you. What are you going to do? You're, you're going to be jealous because that is your child, they shouldn't run up to somebody else and proclaim to be dad. Or imagine your wife or your girlfriend and you see them flirting with another guy, right? That would be, it would be right for you to be jealous because you are the only one to should be able to flirt with your wife, right? Or show love to your child. And so that is not jealous. That, that jealousy is not sinful. Now, if I'm mad at Darren because I really want his GMC Acadia, well, then that is a sinful jealousy, so jealousy is a sin when it's a desire for something that does not belong to you. But God is rightfully jealous when worship, praise, and honor are given to something else. So I think the idea of God being a jealous God is God is saying, I created you. I'm the one that you should worship, not these false images. Yeah, so when we think about the entire character of God, all of it taken together, jealousy fits into that, just like Drew was saying, that God knows what's best for us. He, he wants to bless us and give us everything that, that is good for us. And so when we just essentially deny that gift, uh, that's when the jealousy of God comes in too. And he's like, he, yeah, he has a right to do that because of, of what he wants for us. Uh, essentially. So it's kind of a reversal a little bit. Like God wants for us and he wants that, or God wants good for us and he wants good for us too. So if he can't give that, then he gets a little jealous at us. Yeah, it's good. I think it's, again, that guardrail for life. Like God is guarding us because he knows how quickly our heart will fall into worshiping and adoring something else. And so he puts that tagline on there. Hey, if you end up worshiping something else, that means you don't love me. And if you don't love me, there's consequences. But for those that do follow these guidelines for life, these guardrails for relationship with me, then I'm going to show you a steadfast love and mercy and compassion that will extend your entire life. And so I think it's just a beautiful promise with a little bit of a scary consequence threat in there too of why this piece, this commandment in particular is really important. Well, kind of when you think about it, it makes sense. Like when people say God is all love, it can't be because like if something you love is treating you badly or, you know, turning its back on you or things like that, it's like, wouldn't it be a natural, at least our human mindset to go like, there's a jealousy there. There's like, you're talking about like with, you know, 
a daughter going up to a different man and going and calling it father. It's like there would be a jealousy there, which would which would be natural in understanding. So you can't. It doesn't. It makes sense for you. It's like you can't have love without jealousy or anger or other things to go. Because if you can't be all accepting of everything, otherwise you're accepting of nothing. Right. Yeah. There's that. Like the two sides of the coin. You know, you've got you've got love, but you've also got justice on the other yeah. side of the coin as well. Yeah. No. And then uh, with the law that we're talking about here, like what's the Darren, as we look at that in going into the New Testament, like how does it change? What's the interpretation of this law? Like there's a lot of Christian debate even outside the, you know, the church of what laws to, you know, which ones do we have to keep? Which ones right. are, what, what's the intention of the law? Yeah, well, so as you talk about, as we transition to the New Testament, th- this idea in the second half of this command about punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation, Jesus kind of enter, enters into that debate once. He's asked about, uh, there's a lame man on the side of the road, uh, and, and, he, and he's asked, is it disciples who ask him? Or someone asks him, yeah, like, hey, who, disciples. Yeah, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus is like, neither. That's not, no, the, the world is evil. So, hey, you, get up and walk. And he just does it. Um, and so the idea of that part of the law, um, we, we actually spent a lot of time on this in, in our Thursday night Bible study this past week, because uh, as uh, as a lot of people come to this, it, it's so hard to see, wait, God punishes children for the sins of their parents? Like, that's not right. Um, so two things. First of all, you have to take it within context of the next verse. So God punishes sin to, to the third and fourth generation, but he shows love to thousands of generations. So so there's right there a, a character trait of God about his default position and desire to show love. What happens in the third, fourth generation, the best illustration I can think of is, is this. Um, when, like, do you know your great-grandparents? That yeah. is, right, that's the fourth generation uh, above you. Um, you, depending on the age of your parents, if they were the firstborn, and if you were the firstborn of your parents, you probably knew your grandparents. That's the third generation. Um, but uh, over time, a lot of people, when, when they're in high school, their grandparents pass away. And that's the third generation. And fourth generation, I yeah, a lot of us barely remember our great-grandparents. So the idea here is that if there's something that our great-grandparents did that was sinful, like if, if they were alcoholics, it is likely that their children were affected and that they had to deal with the consequences of, those, of that sin. If they continued that sin, then their, their children would feel the consequences of that. But if a generation was able to break that sin, break that alcoholism or that abuse, whatever it is, then they would still feel the consequences from their parents. And some of those consequences might filter into their parenting techniques uh, to their, their children. But then hopefully by the third and fourth generation, those consequences eventually start to, to filter out. And so that's what, what God is saying here. There is actually a limit to how far sin can, 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 the consequences of sin will last, which is really a great thing, I think. It that, is. That an alcoholism or if you have anger that, that you, your great-grandparent was a murderer, but you don't really know what they did because your grandparents never murdered someone, like that's, that's a good thing, that sin is, is stopped. It's like the, yeah, term, the term they say, like breaking the cycle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So as to your question about um, heading towards the New Testament, um, yeah, Jesus takes these Ten Commandments, takes a lot of the laws, reduces them to uh, to two commands, love God, love others. And there is actually a very common debate of the day. Of uh, A lot of rabbis would enter into it 
And uh, one of the most famous rabbis, his name was Gamaliel. Um, and he was the uh, he was the teacher of the Apostle Paul, actually, a contemporary hmm. of Jesus' day. He was very, very famous. Um, and he was kind of a... Um, well, he was a rabbi who claimed that the world rested on three principles, justice, truth, and peace. Uh, peace. And he based this on Zechariah 8.16. Um, I go find that real quick. 8.16 says, uh, These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. And so there's there's truth, um, yeah, justice, truth, and, and peace. So he reduced it down to three. Jesus reduced it down to two. Some others had seven. Each rabbi kind of had his own his own thing. Uh, fun fact, there's a song. I used to be a choir teacher. There's a, call, a song called Al Shlosha, uh, which, was, uh, which was from Hebrew, and it was about Gamaliel's uh, teachings from the Talmud, which is rabbi commentary on the Old Testament. Uh, we would just sing that thing where the world is based on three things. I sang it a couple times in my in my career. So really fun to actually see that come to to bridge my two careers here. <laughs> interesting. So those are some interesting thoughts to think about where like the connection between the old and the New Testament, you know, worshiping God, whether, you know, and how we do that. I thought it was real interesting when you call them like the icons with like the Eastern Orthodox. That was something that really, like, because you see it all the time, like whether, you know, people's homes or like the images of Jesus that, you know, with the blow-dried mm-hmm. hair and the sash. <laughs> yeah, and Catholics Catholics will have a crucifix with Jesus on the cross. Protestants don't. Is there, what's uh, Mormons the reasoning for don't that? even have the cross. Uh, I think it has to do with some some iconography a little bit. Like, yeah. Jesus is not crucified. He's risen. Yeah. And that's what we emphasize. Like, the cross is empty. The tomb is empty. It's just way easier to wear a cross necklace than an empty tomb necklace. You know, it was just kind of heavy. Is that a cup around your neck, Drew? What is that? <laughs> well, actually, it's an empty tomb, but the stone has been rolled away. So, well, very good. Any any uh, parting thoughts as we wrap this up, guys? No. Next week, we're going to jump into the idea of or the the uh, Moses is Moses's encounter with God. And it's going to be uh, really cool to see how that is a foreshadow of Jesus coming. And as John talks about in John 1, coming and living among us. Um, So definitely tune in next week. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Guys, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you for listening. Like I said, if you have questions, send them to life at ForefrontChurch.tv or use the connection card if you're at Forefront, drop them in the box in the back. And we look forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you so much. You have been listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of More to the Story.